Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com. One place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. It's so hard to believe that we have now reached the end of the sixth season of Family Secrets. Not that anyone's counting, but at 10 episodes each season, that's 60 episodes so far. 60 stories of inspiring, illuminating, honest explorations. As we get to work on a seventh season, I have a special treat for all you Family Secrets listeners. You're about to hear a playlist put together by Hark of some favorite moments in these first six seasons. If you haven't binge listened to every single episode, well, here's a taste. I'm Danny Shapiro, and here are a few of my favorite moments from Family Secrets. The tagline for the show is, the secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. The very first episode of Family Secrets begins with my own story of my life-altering discovery about my own family's deepest secret. 
I felt I had to share my own secret if I was going to be asking my guests to dig into their own. One of the first big pieces of journalism I ever wrote as a young writer was a story for The New Yorker called The Secret Wife. My dad had been dead for a few years, and I was trying to understand him better. From a chance throwaway comment, I had learned that before my dad met my mother, he had been briefly married to a young woman named Dorothy. She died shortly after they wed. As I researched and reported the story, I felt I was uncovering the truth of my own father's sorrow and depression. I interviewed people who told me that Dorothy had been the love of his life. I began to understand, or so I thought, the reasons he was so distant. The source, ultimately, of the painkillers he swallowed by the dozen each day. When I finished The Secret Wife, I thought I was done. Like a detective, I had gotten to the bottom of things. I had solved the case of my beloved, sad, dead dad. It could have happened like this. I could have skipped the whole DNA testing thing because I had no curiosity about it, really. I didn't need to spit into the plastic vial sent by Ancestry.com. I wasn't going to discover new branches on my family tree. So why didn't I? Why didn't I skip it? I've learned something new about family secrets in the three years that have elapsed between that moment in my kitchen in Connecticut, that cold winter evening like so many other cold winter evenings, I've learned that when we discover a family secret is as important as the how and the why of what we discover. It could have happened like this. That most subtle whisper, that place in the deepest interior that we feel when we know something isn't right, there's something we're missing, some piece of elusive information that has been withheld from us. That subtle whisper can become so subtle then we almost don't hear it at all. We brush by it as we go about our lives. We're so busy. Our to-do lists are endless. There are jobs, bosses, spouses, kids, always something louder clamoring for our attention. On the day that my DNA results were returned to me by Ancestry.com, I was 54 years old. I had been married for nearly 20 years. I was the mother of a teenage son. I lived with my family in a house in the Connecticut countryside. I was a writer who had just finished my ninth book. Woman. Wife. Mother. Cousin. Niece. Granddaughter. Great-granddaughter. Daughter. I stared at the results of my DNA test on my computer screen. The numbers, letters, words, names were a nonsensical blur. They arranged and rearranged themselves as I tried to make any kind of sense of them. But I couldn't make sense of them. They made no sense. The results of the DNA test I almost didn't take. Those results, spelled out in crystal clear scientific black and white, meant only one possible thing. My father was not my father. My guest in this episode is David Kaczynski, brother of the man known as the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski. What do you do when bombings are happening all over the country, it's national news, and you suspect that the Unabomber is your own brother? 
part of it. It wasn't only that I modeled myself on Ted. Um, you know, our family sort of had this framework of, of values that uh, was around the life of the mind, the arts. But even though David idealized and idolized Ted, there was also a sense that there was another side to Ted that had nothing to do with the family's shared values or academic achievement. There was a time uh, a little bit later when I asked my mom, Mom, what's wrong with Teddy? And she was a little taken aback, you know. Well, what do you mean, David? There's nothing wrong with your brother. And I said, well, he doesn't have any friends. Why is that? Doesn't he like people? And sometimes he did seem to shy away from folks, you know, um, Somebody would come over unannounced, and he would sort of leave the room quickly, like he was upset that they had arrived or uh, a little frightened. And um, it was then that Mom said that, uh, you know, Ted had had an experience as a child. He is, at the age of nine months, he had gotten sick. They took him to the hospital. Some kind of rash had covered his body, apparently an allergic reaction, but they couldn't diagnose it, and they kept him there for, I think, uh, well over a week. And uh, our parents were only allowed to visit during regular visiting hours. Mom always faulted the hospital for for that. And, uh, you know, she felt that when they brought Teddy home from the hospital, he was a very different child, at least for a while. He didn't smile anymore. He didn't make eye contact. And it was at that point that my mom had said to me, Dave, whatever you do in your life, don't ever abandon your brother because that's what he fears the most. And, of course, I love Teddy. I said, oh, I love Teddy. I'd never abandon Teddy. Uh, And I remember crying, thinking about the pain he had suffered as a little baby. And I think there was another lesson that my mom sort of wove into that sort of teachable moment and the, the lesson was that you know, it takes some compassion, some empathy to try to understand another human being. And how old were you when she imparted this lesson, more or less? I would think, I, I'm not exactly sure, probably somewhere between seven and nine years old. And when you said to your mom, what's wrong with Teddy, what, what, what was it beyond that he didn't seem to have any friends? What prompted you to say that, do you think? Oh, I don't know that I've been asked that question, and it's an interesting one. Um, I think there were times when Teddy just seemed like kind of shut down, Um, like something was bothering him, but he wouldn't express it. A strong sense of privacy, uh, an introversion that was unusual, I think, uh, at least in my experience. And I... I tended to be a fairly social person. I mean, I had friends. I, you know, it, it was natural for me to to be interested in people and to um, want to interact with people. And with Ted, it was quite different. And so probably I was trying to explore why are Teddy and I different in this way. My guest in this episode is Noah Letterman, who uncovers the extraordinary and moving story of his grandparents, who had been Holocaust survivors, who had never spoken of their experience. Noah grows up in suburban Great Neck, but always in the shadow of what had transpired two generations before him, haunted by the stories his grandparents carried and the impact of those stories. He begins to internalize it as some kind of responsibility, 
If anyone in the family is going to unpack the history of his grandparents and what they went through, it's going to be him. Then, when Noah's 18, his grandpa dies. And he's afraid that all of his grandpa's stories will die with him. I'd always been the grandchild, I think, with the most questions. When it came time to, uh, you know, to sit around at the meals, I was always trying to get nearest to my grandfather and, and ask the questions. But it wasn't until, I think, my grandfather died and I'm standing in the cemetery burying him um, and, I'm, and I'm sort of looking around and I'm noticing that all of the, all of the gravestones have these Stars of David on them appropriately at the Jewish cemetery. But inside those Stars of David, a lot of the, the tombstones had Holocaust survivor, Holocaust survivor written within the star. And I, I, I looked over at my grandfather's casket and then out at the cemetery, and it really felt like we were burying all of these stories, you know, all of these things that I would never learn, or so I felt at the time. Then later on that, that day and, and week, um, when we had the Shiva, all of my grandparents' friends started to come to the apartment. And, you know, these Holocaust survivors, they would, like, shuffle in and sit at the table. And for all of the years I had known them, they, they always sat there and spoke in this, like, coded Yiddish. And, you know, it was probably comfortable for them to speak in Yiddish, but also it was convenient for them to not have to, you know, have this kid snooping in on their conversations and, and not have the burden of, like, damaging another another young kid in the family. So they spoke in Yiddish, but at the Shiva, and, you know, at this point I'm 18 years old, I think for my benefit they started speaking in English and they started telling all of these stories about my grandfather. Noah hears two incredible stories during the Shiva as the old Jews sit at the table noshing on bagels and locks. In the first story... His grandfather, who's working on the ship that's taking him and Noah's grandma to America, is accosted by a sailor. My grandfather had a job on the ship, and this other sailor uh, came up to him, and he was an anti-Semite, and basically just said, it's a shame that you should see the end of this war. And then my grandfather knocks him out. And, you know, to, to me, that was just such like a phenomenal moment because it's this little Jew who's standing up to this, like, six-foot-six anti-Semite. And then, you know, when, the, when he's taken to the ship's captain, the ship's captain just looks at the giant sailor and the little Jew, and he laughs. But, you know, in, in my mind, I'm realizing, wow, this was, like, a really brave and tough man. And then that was confirmed for me even more when, when I learned this story that took place in the barn. And the barn story takes place during the Holocaust when my grandfather is essentially hiding in this barn with a friend and um, a Nazi walks in on him and he demands my grandfather's boots. My grandfather, Poppy, he doesn't want to turn over his boots, so instead he tells his friend to extinguish the light and he runs this pitchfork through the Nazi's throat and he leaves him dead there. My guest in this episode is Lacey Schwartz. And Lacey's is a story about secrets and identity and ethnicity and the lengths to which we sometimes go to avoid seeing the truth that is as plain as our own face. When Lacey is 16, her parents, 
who had been having issues, split up. This fissure in the foundation of her family is the first step in a fissure inside of Lacey. She can't articulate it, but she knows that something doesn't make sense. The fall of her senior year, when she applies to colleges, she leaves the box that would identify her ethnicity unchecked. Back in those days, I don't think colleges still do this, Lacey would have sent a photograph along with her application. So, Lacey is admitted to Georgetown as a black student. Do you remember anything about that moment? Was that a conscious choice? Was that a moment of, I really just don't even know what to put here? Or you tell me? <laughs> like, you know, it almost feels like a challenge. Like, you tell me, who, who, who am I? I've spent a fair amount of time analyzing this and, and discussing it with the people that were close to me. But I think, in retrospect, that what I was, even if it was, as you said, the, the unknown truth, or what, what was it you said? What was that phrase? The unthought known the unsought known. And then that was really, so my parents left when I was 16, my junior year in high school, right? So I was sending in my applications more or less that summer or fall afterwards. At that point, I was really, my bubble was popped. And so I think deep down at that point, I did know the truth, but I was very much prioritizing the issues I was dealing with in my life. But at the same time, largely around my relationship with one person, a guy that I was dating at that time, who had already gone off to college, who he himself was also biracial black and had come from the same town as me and was just saying like, yo, it's one thing that you've been walking around in this relatively small community that we grew up in and saying that you're white or, you know, identifying as such. But, you know, when you go out into the bigger world, like people are going to laugh at you, like it doesn't add up. And so I was conscious enough to know at that point that there were things that weren't adding up, but I wasn't prepared to really do the deep dive at that point under my, you know, what was still at the time my parents' roof. I wasn't in the proximity of my parents ready to do that deep diving to figure out, like, well, then who am I if I am not the daughter of both of my parents? Lacey goes off to college and begins to try on her new identity, living in what she describes as a racial closet. She doesn't say a word to her mother. She doesn't say a word to her father. It isn't until she's been away from home for her entire freshman year that she broaches the subject with her mother for the first time. So I went to my mother and was like, listen, I want to know the truth. Like, why do I look the way I did? And my mother, uh, she tends to be kind of hemmed in hot and it took a while, me pushing her for her to finally kind of sit down and really have the conversation about what occurred around me being conceived and how likely it was that my father was not my biological father. So by the time I found out, and really fundamentally, again, it was more of a confirmation process than it was a revelatory process, because by the time I went to my mother and spoke to her, I was ready just to have the information confirmed so I could confirm my own identity and be able to figure out who I was. Lacey's mother does not want to talk about it. At first, she denies it. But eventually, she tells Lacey the truth. Her mom had had a long affair with an African-American man named Rodney, a friend of the family that Lacey has known growing up and who Lacey resembles to such a point that friends have pointed it out. And so kind of at that point, she shared the information and shared what is basic outline of the fact that she had had a relationship with my biological father and that there was a very good chance that I was his child. And for me, I mean, again, based on the fact that I really 
physically looked fairly similar to him, it seemed pretty obvious what the truth was. Once Lacey has the truth of her identity confirmed, you'd think she'd pay her dad a visit, go talk to him. Lacey's mom tells her that the two of them have never discussed it. My parents never talked about the truth. To this day, they haven't actually really full-out had a conversation about the truth for a long time, obviously, because of my mother. But now at this point, my father has made it clear to her that he doesn't want to sit down and talk it out, that he just doesn't want to talk to her about it. And they had never had a moment with each other when you were born or in your childhood. There wasn't that... When he, when he moved out, like when they were pretty much in the process of him moving out, one, one moment he said, you know, I know Lacey is not my biological child. And according to her, you know, she cried and cried and said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But they didn't actually have a conversation. Like that was the extent of the conversation. How long after the hemming and hawing with your mother and then finally her admitting to you that it was possible, how long before you then ended up speaking with your father about it? A decade. A decade. Steve Romo, a polished newscaster, spent much of his life hiding his shame about his upbringing, which resided just beneath his completely pulled-together exterior and his big career. Stephen goes to school dressed in mismatched clothes, dirty clothes, and sometimes the roaches hitch a ride in his backpack, crawl out of his lunchbox. Other kids notice, of course, but Stephen invents stories around why that's the case. I was just a liar. I thought I was really good at it, uh, but now looking back, it just seems ridiculous, the stuff I would say. But it was anything to disconnect me from the way I was growing up. I watched so much TV as a kid, uninterrupted hours upon hours of TV, any and everything. We didn't have cable, so it was just what I could get on the antenna. But because of that, I invented so many stories that were just completely made up about trips to Europe and stuff that would have never happened in a million years. With enough detail, I thought that I was completely tricking all these kids to think that I was actually like one of them or just wealthy and I was made to dress poor because my parents wanted to keep me humble. Just just ridiculous stories that I made up just to try to defend myself. And I was made fun of of course, because that's what happens when you're a kid. But I really feel like the kids were easier on me than they could have been. I could have had it much worse than I did. You know, it's interesting, the whole idea of an education through TV, you know, and and through reading as well. And the way in which, I mean, so often uh, on this podcast, I think about my guests' stories and the way that if the story had been playing out during a time when the internet existed where there was you know, so much readily available information. You could look something up. You could call it by its name. You could find out what it was. You could connect with other people who might be going through something similar. And there are things that are not so great about that, but there are so many things that are that really pierce people's sense of isolation, whereas when you were growing up, that didn't exist. And so your education was Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It's such a ordered gentle, kind place, a place where there would never be a cockroach, a place where there would never be anything out of place or out of order. Did you find all of that was like sort of part of your coming of age? Absolutely. I can't imagine what 
my childhood would have been like without television. It's how I knew that the way I was living was unacceptable and what made me start as a young child trying to fight against it, trying to force my parents to allow us to move um, was just from the stories that I saw on TV. They made me feel less lonely. I felt more connected to um, the characters on TV, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and even shows that weren't actually geared toward me as I was a super young child um, watching um, the Oprah Winfrey show and seeing people who had gone through trauma and had come out just fine. It, it was not geared toward a nine-year-old boy, but watching it made me realize that if these people can overcome horrible things that happen to them, uh, it, the same could be true of me. And then getting a library card and reading Diary of Anne Frank and seeing like, this is nothing that I'm going through. This is nothing compared to what some people have survived. Uh, it was invaluable, that connection. I feel like stories really did save me. I think that's why I'm a, a storyteller now. When John Melman's wife, Marla, was first diagnosed with cancer, they shielded their young daughters from this painful fact. But then, years later, Marla's cancer returned and was now terminal, and they continued to hide the truth of her condition from their now college-aged daughters. We got a crap sandwich, and we had to deal with it. We never looked back at, woe is me, why us? We never said that to each other. We never wondered, like, you know, I wish it had an... It just We just accepted it. And, but we tried to accept it in a manner that we fought it as fiercely as humanly possible. We used every ex- access point that we possibly could from a relationship standpoint, from an involvement standpoint, from traveling around to different hospitals to meet different doctors, to learn and to educate ourselves. So, um, but there was nothing we could do. This is not, uh, hey, I broke my leg and it's going to mend. We thought the first time that we'd get it. We knew the statistics were against us. Um, And then even the second time, she outperformed and pushed the boundaries, you know, three and a half times more than somebody else should have and enabled our kids to go through their puberty, their adolescent teenage years, their high school years. You know, tough times for girls. Not easy time for any girl. Saw them get into their colleges of their dreams. They all were academically very strong students. They were also incredible athletes. And they all played at a Division I level, which for Scarsdale Jewish girls was rare. So they were able to stay on track on a very, very high level that is probably only because of Marla that they saw this fierceness in her to fight the early days and the way that she lived her life, knowing that she always had, potentially had this cancer that was lingering. So it worked for us. It's not for everybody. It was uneasy fibbing. Could you describe that a little bit? Well, for instance, we'd go on a vacation. But Marla, we always had to schedule our vacations on scans or treatments. 
and they were all being done in Boston. So we would leave from New York the day after she had her scan in Boston. She'd literally run back and then get on a plane. We'd go away. But then we'd go back, and we'd come back to New York, and Marla would go back to Boston. Why is Mommy going back to Boston? Well, she has to, you know, she's part of this trial. Yes, it's true. She was part of a trial. A piece of the truth, right? A piece of the truth. But it wasn't like, it wasn't as though this trial is keeping her alive, kids. We never said that. And that was the truth. We called it the loving choice. To provide them enough information that they knew what was going on, but not every detail. So Marla really was fine. Totally fine. For years, she's fine. Years in which she requires a tremendous amount of medical attention. Sometimes she wears a wig, but otherwise, you really wouldn't suspect that she's dealing with a terminal illness. No one knows. But then, in 2018, with her girls now all highly competent young adults, Marla starts running out of options. She's churned through every possible clinical trial and conventional medicine. She begins to develop tumors around her clavicle again, and these are pinching her vocal cords. She has radiation, and a port is put in. This, of course, becomes harder and harder to keep hidden. She has to change the way she dresses. No more summery outfits, nothing low-cut or sleeveless. She wears scarves around her neck. I just thought, because she had this ability to, re- to regenerate, even when the a trial, they didn't think a trial was going to work. It would work for six or nine months, and which was unheard of. Most trials really work eight or 16 weeks. Uh, I just figured we'd get through this holiday season. We have two graduations this year, one of which we had already. We have one in a, in, in a month. I just figured she would plow through this and make it because the red-letter days for her were so important to her. She lived for those. She lived for those days. I just figured she'd do it. But Marla... In September and October, could see that we were headed down a, a trickier place. And she decided, I'm done keeping this secret. I, I can't do it anymore. The guilt was, was riding, and she wasn't sure what the timeline was. When you say guilt, was it because at that point she was facing her yeah. own mortality? And- facing her own mortality. She didn't want to walk around the house covering the port or the fact that she had different red spots because of the radiation. She just didn't want to hide anymore. She was certain she wanted to do in October when the kids were home for the fall break, and she felt then she felt better. She said, okay, I'll just wait till Thanksgiving. Then she got some bad news in November that really there wasn't much left in terms of the even the conventional medicines, and there was one last-ditch effort, but the doctors were saying, you need to start to get ready here. But I just figured she would do it for another six or eight months, and it would be a crappy summer of 19. I thought the summer of 19 would be really crappy. Their older two daughters are away in college, and the youngest is a high school senior. When John and Marla sit them down over Thanksgiving to break some of the news to them, not all of the news. So we told the kids in Thanksgiving that we were concerned. Not worried, but we were concerned that mom had taken a turn and some things had occurred that we did not expect and that we were working through them, but that we were basically flashing a yellow light. Not to worry. And we had a script that we had come in our mind and it went really well. 
And then Marwa pushed the envelope a little bit in the conversation, and we had the girls in a pretty good place, because I don't think that they were totally surprised by all of this, that there was something going on, because the little one was at home, and I'm sure she was telling the sisters that, you know, mom's been running around a little bit more. And she said in this conversation, and we had talked about this line, which was, you know, there's the, the, the likelihood that I'm going to make it to 80 is very low. And then she said, and I was, and I was shocked by, and I did a turn with my neck, I'll never forget. She said, and it's unlikely that I'm going to make it to 60. And that's when we had a little bit of bedlam in the house. The girls were not expecting that. And that sort of changed the vibe and the rhythm to the conversation. But she had had enough of the the gamesmanship that she had and the brinksmanship that she had. Okay, Family Secrets listeners, that's all we've got for now. As for what's to come, we'll be back with all new extraordinary stories to share with you. We've just begun recording them now, so stay tuned. In the meantime, keep an eye and an ear out for occasional bonus interviews, and keep calling us with your own stories at 1-888-SECRET-0. We're listening, and we're so grateful you are too. your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, 
fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 